I am the master, and you will obey me. Listen to Dan Hadley on Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, or face the consequences. For Type 40, your Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network. Now, it could be you're completely new to this show and just maybe you found your new favourite podcast. But it's just as likely you've been aboard before, whichever of those it is, and anything in between. You're in for a good hours plus free speaking, big thinking, eclectic, eccentric Doctor Who conversation for everyone, whatever decade or century you started watching, reading, or listening along to the ongoing adventures of our hero, Doctor Who. So come and step into our TARDIS and share this journey together here with us on Type 40. (laughs) Yes, I'm Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks, and your designated driver. And we've got a, uh, a most exciting, timely edition of the show for you this time. Whatever could I mean? Well, it's the first in a series of conversations celebrating a side to the Doctor Who phenomenon that for a long time was more tolerated than loved. I think that's that's not unfair to say. I'm talking about those two feature films made during the mid-60s that adapted Terry Nation's very earliest multi-part Dalek serials from the TV show to feature films. And therefore, they're not part of official Doctor Who continuity. <gasps> so uh, some have tried over the years to, to reconcile that with established Doctor Who lore on TV. But my take? Why bother? Take them for what they are as historical artefacts or simply for their own entertainment value. And you'll find much to enjoy and uh, as ever with the world's longest running sci-fi and fantasy TV show, there's masses to talk about. But before I introduce our guests and get into all of that, it's my duty to remind you that if you'd like to do some real time traveling of your own, each and every edition of our show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two away on the device of your choice 
if you know where to look. There's well over 100 now great conversations, reviews, previews, interviews, geek outs, and deep dives with all our regular panelists and other awesome guests. We know there's something for every fan at type40.podbean.com. There'll be more about all of that a little later on, as well as a couple of minutes where we will make contact with that matrix of all knowledge that we call the Fandom Podcast Network about all the other movies and TV shows that we love almost as much as Doctor Who, almost, going on across that other family of shows. That's all the housekeeping taken care of. I think it's time to slip both uh, backwards and sidewards in time. Maybe flick on the lava lamp if you have one. I'm sure you could improvise if you haven't. Maybe grab a box full of soft centres and enjoy this first review of Doctor Who's Trips to the Silver Screen. If the BBC's Doctor Who TV series hadn't been quite an overnight success, then the Daleks, the programme's first of many alien beings, they had been, with their unmistakable visage, easily imitated mode of speech and their irresistibly ruthless disposition. They'd taken not just our living rooms, but our high streets and even the playgrounds positively by storm. So much so that the small screen couldn't confine them for very long at all. The British film studio Amicus would bring them to the big screen little over 18 months after their TV debut with the movie Doctor Who and the Daleks premiering on the 23rd of August 1965. But who would be Doctor Who? Yes, so with this movie about to be uh, re-released, released onto 4K Blu-ray for the very first time, we'll be able to uh, feel their fire more than ever, really, won't we? And JT and I are joined by uh, horror movie aficionado. Peter Benassi, and uh, making his return to the show, writer and human cult TV search engine, Ian McLachlan, for this uh, big roundtable discussion. Hello, and here we are in widescreen colour, some of us wider than others. Oh, thank you very much for pointing that out to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm breathing in, Ian. We're all coming from slightly different places, I think, not just with with Doctor Who, broadly speaking, but specifically with this movie, I think we probably all saw it under similar but different circumstances. And I can't wait to talk about it and compare notes with you as it goes along. Now, as you said, JT, you know, this movie, everything about it, really, it's the kind of sci-fi that, that we used to get in the 1950s, and but somewhat advanced. But of course, 10 years after this film, a little over 10 years, after this film was made, everything leapt forward hugely with George Lucas's Star Wars. So it's in a it's in a very precise, very sweet spot, isn't it, Doctor Who and the Daleks? Doctor Who and the Daleks absolutely is, and 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 the brilliant thing about it is that it's quintessentially through and through. It's a British film. It's a good old fashioned British film coming on the back of all those wonderful things: the Lavender Hill Mob, the horror series, you know, the Carry Ons. And it's got that particular flavour to it. Like a warm mug of tea? It is. I mean, you can look at it. I don't know what Ian and Peter think about this, but when you go back to watch Doctor Who and the Daleks, you can, you can actually feel the Britishness coming through. You can, you can feel the quality of a, of a world that's now long gone. 
Yes, I mean, it's very charming. That is probably what I like least about it compared to the TV series. Because, Peter, the TV series stock trade at that point had been scares, hadn't it? It would, it would be to, to keep children on the edge of their seats for 25 minutes and, mm. and then it would be off for a full week. The idea mm. being they would never stop thinking about it and talking about it in between. But the, the cinema, obviously, and that was in black and white too, but the cinema was a slightly different prospect, wasn't it? And obviously yeah. you being a horror movie aficionado, as, as we said, you'd appreciate where this exactly sits, I suppose, in oh, relation yeah. to everything I mean, else that was coming out around that time. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, it looks it looks gorgeous. You know, it definitely does. The full colour and the Daleks is glorious looking. I mean, it really is quintessentially British. It sits within that kind of realm, you know. And Hammer were obviously getting really big at that time. Uh, and then Amicus, you, you they were coming up with their portmanteau films, and it was courtesy of them that this came about. Hammer were doing their thing, weren't they? And, and yeah. uh, they got a sort of stable of stars and a, and a recipe, really, that had been quite successful. And yeah. but Amicus was a slightly different prospect, wasn't it? And I wouldn't say that they were struggling, but they no. were flexing different muscles, weren't they? And, and so, so for them to develop a family yeah. movie like this, uh-huh. albeit one with, with still some jump scares, I don't know if it was particularly bold, but it was no. probably filling a gap in the market and anticipating mm-hmm. what something that could potentially potentially go global. Yeah, Amicus were keeping a, a, you know, a keen eye on yeah. Hammer, what they were doing, you know, and they had the horror output, but then Hammer started to make more kind of family-friendly films, Entertainment, the Pirates films, uh, there was a, a Robin Hood film as well. So I think um, Amicus decided, okay, well, we can do that too. And yeah. hey, presto, that's how you got Doctor Who obviously being so big at the time, mm. we thought that would be the, the way to do it, you know? Mm. There was nobody that I think it could have been bigger with than Ian. Ian, you'd been positively won over, hadn't you, by the series? You know, initially you weren't that interested, were you? We've spoken about this on the show, but Doctor Who charmed you, didn't it? And it became appointment to view TV for you when you were at primary school, didn't it? So when did you first hear about the prospect of a Doctor Who movie? I'm not very sure, but I certainly uh, remember that I the only TV21 magazine I bought uh, was the one that featured Doctor Who and the Daleks film. Yeah. Although my parents were both professional, but we didn't have a lot of money to spend. When I was at primary school, I think I got a shilling, five new pence, pocket money. So I didn't have the the masses of stuff that people often have today, and though I have today. I didn't see Doctor Who and the Daleks film um, at the time, and I was always wondering if the only way I could see it was to see it on a Saturday and miss Doctor Who. (laughs) So eventually, it was a Friday night, I remember, and my dad, who wasn't really, I I was the only Doctor Who fan in in my household. Mm -hmm. My dad, took me to a screening of Doctor Who and the Daleks and Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD. So we got two Dalek films for the price of one. Um, I remember, I think it was a program about films which um, had the clips from it. And I remember at the time thinking, that's strange, the Doctor has a moustache, something that the new Doctor seems to have uh, in the future as well. 
And um, I remember being slightly surprised at uh, William Hartnell not being in it. Mm -hmm. And I always said at the time that Peter Cushing was a bigger star. Now, maybe he was, but Bill Hartnell made a lot of films. So he was a film star, not always in the lead role. But the thing is, they wanted to make Doctor Who virtually most weeks in the year. So mm -hmm. he couldn't have been excused from TV role to make the film. The only clips I saw were in glorious black and white um, <laughs> in the course, film. Yeah. It was only when I finally got to see the double bill that I got to see that. Was that quite a seductive prospect then for you, Ian, being able to see them in full colour? It didn't break the spell for you? Unlike a lot of Doctor Who fans, I was a Doctor Who fan more than a Dalek fan. I mean, I yeah. like the Daleks. They're some of the best serials, but I liked all the Doctor Who, the historical ones, the other ones, futuristic ones. I liked it all. One of the things that uh, I was allowed to buy was the Doctor Who and the Daleks novelization by David Whittaker. And if you know that novel, you'll know it varies drastically from the TV serial that it was based on. And so this film is another version of uh, <laughs> The Dead Planet. Absolutely. Uh, so confusing. Well, I don't know if I was aware of that fact, but um, sometimes TV programs were made into films. Francis Durbridge serials were often turned into, into films. And the same was true of Quatermass. Back in the day, there, there, there was three Quatermass films based on the TV series. Nigel Neal shows that were on in the 1950s, they turned those into, into films, didn't they, over a period yeah, of time, yeah, all with different stars. Yeah. Two in black and white and one in colour, wasn't it? So yeah, yeah it, was a, right, it was an established pattern that this would happen. And I suppose that uh, knowing, knowing Terry Nation, the creator yes. of the Daleks and <laughs> screenwriter and businessman. He was very, very savvy. So I doubt that that possibility, once the Daleks had, had taken off in the way that they did and Dalek mania sort of happened, I yes. doubt that that would have been, the prospect would have been completely lost on Terry. Just in case you haven't seen it for a while, don't know what we're talking about. This is Doctor Who and the Daleks, the uh, the first of two Dalek movies. Are they Dalek movies or are they Doctor Who movies? I don't know. Dalek. That's probably a... Released in the mid sixties, and the general plot line. Yes, it's very similar to the to the TV story that it's based on. It went something like this. So the the eccentric inventor Doctor Who is showing off a homemade time machine to his granddaughter's new boyfriend Ian. The young man's bumbling accidentally activates TARDIS. Not the TARDIS, TARDIS, whisking, whisking them and Doctor Who's other younger granddaughter Susan all off to another planet, a world devastated by a nuclear war. In time, they come upon a metal city where they are captured by the Daleks, evil mutants that live inside machine casings. Give myself a shiver then, just, just thinking about it, guys, just thinking about it. So, yeah, this story, as originally devised, uh, written by Terry Nation, uh, adapted by, by David Whittaker, who was, he was originally the script editor on the TV show, wasn't he? Yes. This story went through all these rewrites and other versions, and yet it's it's such a clean story, isn't it, where the stakes are very obvious, the things that it is aligning itself with and alluding to and reflecting from our world are all very, very obvious. 
even though the TV story had been like seven parts much, much longer, boiling this down to sort of something like 86 minutes, it really does, I don't want to say cut the fat off, but it does show the strength, I feel, in uh, Nation's original concept, doesn't it, JT? I think you're right. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because some of us didn't have that wonderful experience that Ian had of actually being there when this came out. I actually saw Doctor Who and the Daleks, the movie, before I saw the Hartnell original. Uh, because when when Doctor Who and the Daleks um, was released in, you know, um, on, on television, I think it must have been the 70s when I saw this, mm-hmm. on a Saturday morning in the summer, I was blown away by it because I watched this and thought, well, okay, that's, that's a different Doctor. And it never sat with me that this is the Doctor, this was Doctor Who. But to see it, you know, and looking through that story and pacing it, I thought, how the hell have they did they do this on television in 1963? And then I had to wait many years until I saw it in a, a convention. Uh, the actual Dalek, and I thought, ah, the pacing was different, the style was different, it was smaller. This was a very um, ambitious project, and again, you know, with what Peter was saying earlier about this whole um, reaching out to the family, you can see that money has been spent on this, imagination has been spent onto this film to reach that audience, and the pacing is quicker, I think, than the seven-parter original on the television, and it's two different things, really, two different animals. Which of the two of them did you prefer? Right. Well, obviously, I'm going to say the, the, the William Hartnell one, but that's not to say that, you know, for, for me, and they are two different worlds. The Peter Cushing movies are very special for me because they're the first time I saw these Dalek sort of stories ever. And then when I came to the television version, that's Doctor Who. So that's that for me is all part of what I follow as Doctor Who. I'm very, very keen on the Peter Cushing films. I do count them as Dalek films. What's interesting is uh, at the time, uh, a lot of us thought that these were not that great. But compared oh. to the Doctor Who stories we've had in recent years, they're masterpieces. Well, say when you and your pals were going off to see these films, put me right here because I often watch these Dalek films and have this vision of the youngsters that were around in the 60s at the time going to see these things, going to see the Daleks on the big screen, looking at Peter Cushing and then coming out and actually feeling elated and excited and wonderful and tapping into all the Dalek mania. What's the truth of that? don't know how old I was. I must have been in secondary school. I had, I had a couple of friends that liked Doctor Who when I was at primary school. At secondary school, uh, you wouldn't admit to liking Doctor Who. Oh, and it started back then. Like, there you go. It is, it's Doctor Who <laughs> shot through through a, a prism, isn't it, as as concocted, as put together by the uh, the director, Gordon Fleming, yeah. and writer and producer, Milton yes. Sabotsky. It was these two gentlemen that enabled the format to translate to the big screen. It was something that they quite passionately believed in. And obviously they saw there was money to be made out of this, but yeah. creatively so too. They were, as I understand it, both of them were, had been charmed by the TV show and, and saw the potential for this. Uh, Peter, who were M- Melton Sabotsky and Gordon Fleming? Well, they were from New York. Uh, it was Milton, Milton Sabotsky and Max J. Rosenberg. Uh, collaborated and they were, uh, that was the, the amic, they built the Amicus Empire. So they had to approach uh, Joe Vigoda, he was the executive producer, so that they could co-finance it. It had a budget uh, of £180,000, Peter, was that quite yeah, large for the, a British yeah, film at the time? And I think that that was on the condition that they get, because it's Arrow, that they've got that in the credit. That's uh, right, yeah. Arrow Productions, it's not Amicus. He, can he co-finance that and that's how uh, they were able to get it off the ground. They were very modest films that they made, the Doctor Terror's House of Horrors that had preceded this, but effective nevertheless. You know, but this was really pushing the boat out. 
do you think they always had just one name on their shortlist to play Doctor Who in this? And do you think that Peter Cushing was an obvious choice? You know, because he'd had quite a patchy career, hadn't he? You know, he was born in 1913, so he was in his early 50s when he, when he began playing the Doctor in these films. He was in something like 100 movies throughout his life, wasn't he? But he worked in stage and radio and, and everything yeah. too, born in Surrey, and uh, and did a stint around the reps before he moved out to Hollywood, didn't he, to, to begin a proper movie career yeah. in the major studios. But he came yeah. back to Britain because of the war, didn't he? And he sort of had a yeah. second burst of a career on television and radio, which kind of led to him being employed a lot by Hammer. Was it a case of the Amicus or Aru wanted to sort of poach somebody who'd been bankable elsewhere? You know, in order for their their films to be successful, they had to harness someone that had that kind of international appeal, and Peter Cushing was the man to do that. And I also think as well they wanted to make him this kind of family-friendly figure because Peter Cushing being in Hammer films, he always had this kind of sinister aspect to him. The name Peter Cushing, just like Christopher Lee and Vincent Price, I suspect it's the kind of name, yeah, that would sort of send a shiver up people's spines. That's right. (laughs) And I think they wanted to change that perception that, you know, so that the adults, you know, didn't want to meet him in the dark alley. So let's (laughs) make him this very kind of charismatic, crusty, can he absent-minded professor type? Yeah. Did Cushing do this before he did Sherlock Holmes? Uh, yeah. The TV series of Sherlock Holmes was after because my favourite Sherlock Holmes was Douglas Wilmer. And uh, that was 1965. Uh, Peter Cushing had done a film, uh, 58 I think it was. Aye, that was for him. When Douglas Wilmer didn't want to do another series of Sir Sherlock Holmes, they did the, the follow-up series, Peter Cushing episodes, and they were made in colour. It's interesting, isn't it, though, Ian? Because now, you know, in, in the 21st century, I think when people talk about, about the Doctor as one of the mainstays of British television, of fictional British television, he's often likened to characters like Sherlock Holmes. And you, But when you look back to the 60s and who the Doctor was then, as you said, as William Hartnell, the, the sort of kindly but slightly irascible, forgetful grandfather, couldn't be further away in some respects than uh, Sherlock Holmes. In casting an actor like Peter Cushing, they've got somebody who could put their own stamp on it really quite quickly. I remember my father uh, saying that he recognised Peter Cushing for some Mm. work that he had done. As you said, Peter, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, with him and Roy Castle, probably influenced the casting. But it's interesting, Dan, you said not a Sherlock Holmes. Now, the Doctor... Um, in the early days, were always often faced with problems and he had to work out the solutions to the problems um, that he faced. So in a sense, he was a kind of solver of mysteries. So I don't see him as being that distant. But it must have been a slightly refreshing for him to get something that he knew was going to bring him to children. Um, so you're you saying there, Ian, that you, your your father recognised him at the age your father would have been at that point. I didn't know Peter Cushing at all when I first saw Doctor Who and the Daleks, you know, and we didn't have the internet there, kids, so I couldn't look him up. No. I didn't recognise him again until a few years later when he arrived as Tarkin in Star Wars. And I was like, oh, that's the guy that played Doctor Who. So, you know, it was a wave to, you know, it's, it carries on today. People are still finding Peter Cushing through that. But his performance, because, of course, in those days, 
we didn't know who the doctor was or where he came from. Certainly in this film, it comes from what I take it to be a Surrey house, you know, somewhere in the That's southeast the mystery, of England. The mystery JT of the TV show, they they fill in the gaps, don't they? To the simple yeah, fact of it, it is to make a more serviceable film and plot that will travel further. It's it's quite charming in that sense because it doesn't feel the need to explain anything. It's just there with his two granddaughters building a time machine, which happens to look like a police box in his back garden. I mean, it's quite, again, it's British. It's it's, it's something yeah. that we all do. We all go out and We've build a time projects, machine. We've <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But the brilliant thing about that is that that's it, overlooked, done. And he's playing this very sort of doddery, not quite eccentric, but certainly you know n not quite with it, old man. And you can see that coming through. He gets exhausted going up that wonderful set to the city, for example. Pete, does this sound true? I mean, would this have been, do you think, from what you know of, of, of Mr. Cushing, would this have been a breath of fresh air for him? I mean, he probably enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm quite sure he did, you know. And uh, I just think maybe, because I, I discovered Cushing, you know, it was Hammer. So I've kind of went the Hammer route and then back, went back the way and then looked at other things that he's done. And I thought, oh, but then by that time I had enjoyed Tom Baker's Doctor Who because he oh. was my Doctor Who and I thought oh and then I discovered there was films made and oh, wait a minute one of my idols is playing Doctor Who but hold on that's not Doctor Who. Of course Cushing but, was joined by Roy Castle who was then 33 years old and actor as you say he'd been in, in a previous film with Cushing but yeah. Castle was uh, for decades I'd say one of Britain's most foremost, most versatile entertainers, a musician, a dancer, an actor. He was a TV presenter. All kids, I think, recognised Roy Castle. There was yes. uh, Jenny Linden, who was a 25-year-old actress who'd been in, I think, a couple of movies up to that point, and TV shows like, like The Saint and uh, The Persuaders, everything that starred Roger Moore, basically. She starred in a lot of those things. And eventually, I, I understand, she made a couple of really quite seminal films. She was in... Uh, women in love, which in love. With oliver reed yep and uh, we're still acting certainly I, I don't know if she's retired by now but i know she's certainly still around still a very active woman that was the principal cast completed by roberta tovey who was just 11 years old playing the doctor's younger granddaughter susan obviously again that was a name that we also recognized from the tv version but here susan is literally a child and a, a child prodigy I think, Ian, that staple of, of genre fiction. We even get, you know, we're getting into the 80s with characters like Wesley Crusher on Star Trek, weren't we? And, and she was very much in that mould. I remember, yes. and I think it was 1966 or 67, uh, there was a New Year show. And one of the reviews was, I hope we don't see as much of Roy Castle this year as we did last year. That was a critical comment from some things don't change everywhere yeah. <laughs> i actually i didn't really meet roy castle but i saw him i, I did a drama thing at the orange tree theater and he was a great supporter of that particular theater the thing is you, you mentioned the susan and roberta tovey now one of the things about the doctor who film is it's much more aimed at a child audience Susan being a child um, helps that. Yeah. Susan in the original TV series, um, I never reckoned she was a child. Um, she was mysterious. And the thing about Verity Lambert was she was determined not to talk down 
to children. She didn't have any children of her own at that time. And she made Doctor Who for the intelligent 11 to 14 year olds. Now it's interesting when Russell T Davis returned um, in Doctor Who, the, the wheelie bin that made a noise, Slovenes, uh, the sort of jokes that children like weren't there. And that's why I think Doctor Who gained an adult audience or an all-family audience quite quickly. They were quite adult. There was wonderful adaptions of uh, uh, books that I watched as, as, a, as a young person growing up. There was this Doctor Who on Saturday, classic series on Sunday. But the thing that I felt about the film, particularly the, the first one, was it was more child friendly with the jokes about the soft centers and things and the joke about Absolutely. I don't the- like I don't like using words like slapstick but some of the comedy is really broad yes. isn't it and if you've got an actor like Roy Castle who was a very physical actor wasn't he JT so versatile and with that kind of natural rhythm and physicality if you've got an actor like that you you're going to use him you're going to make him work for his money aren't you you absolutely are, and it's quite right too. I mean, one of the beautiful things about um, the Dalek films, and Doctor Who and the Daleks in particular, is that there is a joy in it, and there is an excitement in it. And because it's the early days, of course, where nobody knew how long Doctor Who was going to go on or how much money was going to be involved in it, uh, and the BBC were quite happy to say, oh, yes, you can have the this, this, this scripts, and here's Terry Nation, and here's this, and this, and this. Um, they've been given free reign. And it's wonderful in that case because they're, they're able to bring this element in to say, well, we want to pitch it slightly differently. We're basing it on the BBC television series, but this has to be a movie which people, all people can go to because you're going to get children of all ages and their parents or grandparents, whoever going with them. And we want to have them all involved. And I think it's extremely successful because of that. And it yeah. does look really good as well. Everything that you were saying, Peter, about it losing that sort of intimacy and creepiness of being in yeah. black and white deliberately trying to to put you on the edge of your seat it definitely loses that tautness uh-huh. i think it substitutes something of equal worth within its own gift i think yeah. it creates a fantasy world it takes you from the coziness that you were describing jt and the britishness to this alien world that does feel kind of because of the colours and because of the extraordinary sets, it feels kind of dreamlike or a nightmare even. And it's very precisely balanced. There wasn't any location filming done for Doctor of the Daleks, Peter. Nothing. I mean, I can understand the casting was obviously deliberate. So Peter Cushion, he took care of the adults coming in because they knew him from Hammer. So we need somebody that's going to get the teenagers in. Roy Castle, good looking guy, very versatile. But I remember seeing it and I always used to think it reminded me of a children's film foundation film that had had a kick up the backside, you know? <laughs> and I liked that. It reminded me a little bit of Here Come the Double Deckers, which followed a few <laughs> years later. You know, so again, Britishness. I don't, and I, don't I love know what that. that is. I love it sounds amazing. I do like Double Deckers, but I prefer Whispers. Go on, carry on. Yeah. You mentioned Here Come the Double Deckers, Peter, because that was made in film. And I remember at the time, it was quite unusual to get a series made on film. It looked American. I've been watching a few YouTube videos, and there was one interesting one. Very iffy. In the beginning, it wasn't clear whether the Doctor was an alien or actually a human from the future. 
on the TV series, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, it was only when he changed into Patrick Troughton that it was obviously he wasn't a human uh, from uh, a distant planet. So it was quite acceptable to uh, make Peter Cushing a, an Earth person. And oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, we didn't know that this thing was going to go for nearly 60 years, depending on when you're watching this video. We didn't know that. The audience didn't know that. A lot of the audience, let's be honest here, a lot of the audience that were supporting Doctor Who in its earlier days, God love them, are no longer with us. You know, to get back to that thing about what you were saying, Dan, about the black and white aspect, I don't think that would have harmed at all. Because if you look at Doctor Who and the Daleks, when you get to Scarrow, that atmosphere of that green jungle that beautiful set with the sand everywhere i mean it must have been a nightmare to walk on and work on but it looks fantastic it looks like something that doctor who on the television at the time obviously could never give you that's what they played on it here are the here were the daleks it was on big screen it was color and it was big and it must have been for the little ones going to see it in the cinema it must have been huge to see the green lighting of scara which i think is beautiful that incredible set leading up to the city which at one point if you remember separates Sets uh, with all this glaring light coming out of this rock i mean that must have cost a wee bit of money for them there it's the same elements isn't it that we get in the in the original script that, for the tv version just excel i order. suppose yeah. is the yeah yeah and they didn't make a rod for their own backs with this movie. They were sensible about some of the decisions that they made. I understand they still went to Shawcraft to get their Daleks built as they built they for the TV show. The guys, the craftsmen at Shawcraft, they get to really go to town. The BBC used They did them? later, yeah, they did. They did a little bit later on, yeah. <laughs> There's a variety of different colours, which I understand that somebody along the process, I think probably Terry Nation or, or maybe the director, had got it in their heads what the different colours could be. Some were drones. It was the ranks. Were, top, yeah, the yeah. ranks. Yeah. Rank. It just opened everything out, didn't it? I mean, again, you know, I often think about the little ones, the, the children who are, will be now grown adults, who must have sat there go, wow, it's red. I think they all had, like, sort of different roles depending on, you know, the colour. Yeah, it went, it went from Commander and Supreme yeah. and all this sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I, you know, sometimes I wonder how much that came in with the colour grading in the, in the Doctor yeah. Who and the Dalek movie. You know, the uh, yeah. the Dalek operators in this film were mostly completely fresh to it. The new, new guys, people who hadn't worked for the BBC, and the rest of the cast were well. They're made up of uh, Barry Ingram, who played Aladon, who was the mm -hmm. the sort of chief Thal, wasn't he? Michael Coles was Ganatus, Yvonne Antrobus was Dione, and Geoffrey Toon was Temesis. It was a a small cast, but I think we spend enough, just enough time with them to get a feel for them, who they are, what they want, the Daleks and the Thars. It's set out very clearly what they want and how they are going to go about achieving it. Mm. And that, that drastic difference between what the what the Daleks are prepared to do, you know, that they're guile, and then the, the Thars, who were who are pacifistian. So th these are some of the themes of the 60s that we're all aware of from the TV versions, I suppose. It still works really, really well, doesn't it? Aimed at a perhaps slightly younger audience. I always said that the, the theme, um, and it's in the film as well as the TV series, though I think I'm right in saying in the film, it's the Doctor that gets the Thals to fight. Uh, That's right. In the TV series, it's Ian, um, suggesting that... that uh, they take Dione uh, to the Daleks, and it's interesting because um, because of what's happening in the world today. We all pray and hope for peace, 
But um, if you've got somebody that's doing drastic things, you don't roll over to them. It's not pacifist. That story, no. the film, is not. It's saying that mm -hmm. if you believe in something, you have to make sacrifices. And it was interesting for, for a, a family film that there were deaths. Everybody didn't get out and, um, you know, in one piece. It was, it was quite beautifully done, though, because there's that one scene where Ian, Barbara and uh, their team are, are, are going towards the Dalek city and they're going the other way around, aren't they? So they're going through the, the, uh, the swamps. Yes. And there's that scene where one of the one of the team stops for the water. Yes. And we never see him again. You just hear the scream and then they go back and the water's bubbling. I quite like how they've presented Doctor Who in this film and how Peter Cushing grasps that because what Doctor Who does there and that, what you alluded to there is he actually says, you see, you will fight for something. I, mm -hmm. I think that's magical. And I think it's right in their film that Doctor Who does this because, you know, the Doctor in, in the TV series is aloof. He's not really caring. You know, he's that sort of mysterious, oh, God, mm -hmm. get me away from all these people because he's still finding his way. And here it's very clear who the star who the, the human star, at least, of this film is. It's Peter Cushing, of course. Peter Cushing, yeah. he's going He's going to be doing that. This Yeah, this was shot at Shepperton Studios in England over a six-week period in the uh, April of 1965 and to that budget of 180000 It was in cinemas just a few months later. And yet, you would think, maybe they did cut corners somewhere, somewhere along the line. I don't know. Or maybe there was just a wealth of uh, experience, of craftsmanship and enthusiasm too, to get their creative hands on this property that had been so successful elsewhere. Because it's a really, really rich film, isn't it, Peter? Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it does look, it looks gorgeous. I mean, you, you can't argue with that. It definitely does. You know, there's craft there that is just unmistakable, you know, uh, it's exceptionally well done. The only thing that I have criticism for <laughs> is the fact that, that the kind of more kind of sinister element that the sequel, I find, delivers. I think what's very interesting is the relationships between the four um, travelling companions in the TARDIS. Doctor Who, in the film, is obviously closer to Susan than he is to Barbara. Yeah, and I get that impression too. Barbara is kind of sidelined, and mm -hmm. Ian is kind of the comic relief but Susan and the Doctor have a, a, a special relationship because he um, sort of uh, implies he's going to make sure he sees the city. So that aspect, which was much stronger in the TV series, because Ian was a stronger character uh, in the TV version, although Ian in, in, in the, the movie got to go inside the Dalek and all, all that sort of thing, and there was also the, the, the funny scene when he was trying to get through the doors and didn't quite make it. The Doctor and Susan um, come across as more capable uh, as characters than in the, in the TV series. And Susan is given quite a lot to do. I mean, there was a spooky uh, scene when she has to go back to TARDIS herself. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a scene when Barbara is confronted by the, the Metrotome, but it's not quite the same. So it's, it's interesting that um, I always felt that Barbara in the film wasn't so prominent. I think she's drastically underdeveloped in this. And I don't think it's anything that Jenny Linden isn't doing. I think she's great in the role, but she definitely suffers. She seems to get less screen time. 
less development. She seems to do a lot of the textbook example. She gets, tends to do a lot of screaming and running around and just to be where she's supposed to be. A lot less, a lot less developed a character. And I do think it's a pity because this is somebody who's who's had this this huge career. I'm sure she was more than capable. Yeah, but you can't help but latch on to Susan more so. There's something about Roberta Tovey in this role. You would think that she was older, playing younger. It's, I wouldn't describe it necessarily as a sophisticated performance, but it's a really confident performance. She seems to know exactly what she's doing and why. When I, the very first time I saw this film, it was in 1985, so I was the same age that, that Roberta Tovey was when she was playing the part. And, and what you've just mentioned there about the, the scary moments, how Susan has to go, because the others are far too ill with radiation sickness, aren't they? So she's got to go back to the TARDIS to get some drugs, and that's where she's she first meets Aladdin the Thal. And she seems so small in that huge forest, the, the petrified jungle, however you want to describe it. She seems so small and so vulnerable. And I think that, that Roberta Tovey conv- conveys that really, really well. The, f- the fear and the trepidation, but she powers through it, JT, because she's, she's brave and because her family need her. It's, it's all down to characterization. What, what Ian's saying there, you know, yeah, okay, Barbara is sort of sidelined, but Barbara's slightly older. What Peter Cushing, I think, has grasped onto there is the fact he's got this, this little granddaughter here. And Doctor Who is, in a sense, a child. And I think it's down, that's how he's got his character built yeah. there. He's, he's looked at his version of Doctor Who and he's gone, it's going to be this playful, eccentric character that relates more to his younger granddaughter than the granddaughter that's grown up a little bit. But the two of them share that passion of science and engineering and mathematics and wanting to know that curiosity comes out. And I think Cushion has, has masterfully uh, grasped that and relating it back to the, the Susan character. And Roberta's, at her young age, able to play that back. And it's just like two kids going wild, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, they are. They do feel like two kids. And I don't think I'd realised until I came to look at it again now that Cushing was only in his early 50s. Mm. He was he was playing a lot older and he was bow-legged and, and stooping and fussing <laughs> and, and all those little character flushes in that I suspect he relished all that. Dan, that was the tradition in the old days. In television nowadays, like the, the, the Crown, you have different actors playing older versions of the same person. Oh, yeah. And in the old days, they were aged. Mr. Pastry, Richard Hearn, who was a, a possibility for Doctor Who at one point, was playing an old man, but he wasn't the only one. Clive Dunn, you think of Clive Dunn, he always specialised in playing old <laughs> characters. William Hartnell uh, played the old talent scout in The Sporting Life, which really helped to get in the role. And he, that was, again, an older character than uh, Bill's age was at that time. So it wasn't unusual to have younger men playing much older people, sometimes playing younger people as well. It was all about characterization back then. I mean, That's a lot true. of the newer actors, yeah. no, not all of the newer generation of actors today, they don't seem to understand the point of characterization. And, and there's, an, mm-hmm. there's this whole thing about roles should be casted to type now and you know if you're not this you can't play this and all this nonsense but back yeah. then actors just acted and they they were allowed mm-hmm. to act and they were later slapped to set themselves with makeup and age them yeah. you know and i think again for cushing that was must have been i mean you know he was he was doing all these horror things wasn't he Pete, do you think that cushing may have been slightly able to look at a script before a doctor who and after a doctor who and see the same sort of role i think i think he had to make it his own 
you know, and there was obviously that, uh, not pressure as such, you know, but they had more or less decided this was going to be it's a Dalek movie mm. and it's going to be a family friendly movie and this is a style, it's got to be a departure from the series in terms of his characterisation because he's not the Doctor as you knew from the TV series, he's Doctor Who, almost like who's his surname. Well it was, you wasn't know? it? Because Ian says yeah. nice to meet you Doctor Who. That's right, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, I'm quite sure he enjoyed it, you know, and then being the actor that he was, and that's what actors did then, you know, they became a character. You know, it was all about, it was nothing to do with age, that was part of their craft, that's what being an actor is all about. It seems to suit, you know, their age and their orientation, and that's all wrong, that contradicts, you know, what being a, a performer is. I was just thinking, Peter, how we'll first see the Doctor and both his granddaughters. It reminds me of the opening scene from Back to the Future. It's perfect silence, and we don't even see Martin McFly's face, in fact. During that, we we pick up on things about him as he's moving around. We see his plectrum and all the little things that are dotted around on shelves and things like that. And, and nobody, nobody speaks in that for about two minutes. And it's the same with the first scene to this as it pans around Doctor mm. Who's sitting room, and they're all sat there reading different things. I think Susan's reading reading encyclopedia, isn't she? And Barbara's reading something scientific and and well, it establishes the characters, doesn't it? It shows you the level they're all at. Saying that's a establishing, word. establishing exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then you get Doctor Who with yeah, the eagle? The eagle? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it tells you all you need to know. It tells you that he's a big kid, like you were saying, Jason. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think the comedy is much more pronounced than in Doctor Who. I agree that, that changed over time, of course. Yes. That time, the, the comedy, very much part of the film. I think part of the reason is these films were shown in cinemas where you got an audience. Audiences like joining in together and laughing together, whereas most people watch Doctor Who with their family or on their own. So it's a different different type of audience. You see, Ian, that's a great point here. And for, for somebody like myself, um, who has never seen it in a cinema, I can't imagine this film being on a big widescreen. And it's one of the reasons I'm quite excited to see where they're going to do it, because because this year they are re-releasing the films into selected cinemas across the United Kingdom. And I am really excited about where they're going to put them, because I'd love to see these things as they were meant to be on a big screen because I've only seen them on television. And yes, the televisions have got bigger and wider through the years, but nothing like that. It must have been really magical to be walking up those steps with the red carpets as we used to have in all our British cinemas back in the day, that unique smell that <laughs> Tony cinemas had, the ice cream, and sitting mm. down to see these Daleks for the first time, bigger looking Daleks and this cast and these sets all in color. You know, how exciting. As I said to you before, um, I didn't see many cinema films at mm. the time because I remember paying to uh, get my family to see 2001 A Space Odyssey. So we saw that together. Uh -huh. And what, what we've never mentioned so far is remember the year after the Doctor Who film, Thunderbirds Are Go was released uh -huh. in cinema. It wasn't a TV series. It was on Saturday night. Uh, Thunderbirds after Doctor Who in my particular region. So yeah. there was a connection with the Anderson thing as well. Both of them, I think Thunderbirds are going, Thunderbird 6 is more appreciated now 
than it was at the time. Probably. I mean, for some, so for some of our fandom, seeing Peter Cushing was their first Doctor. Because even in the wilderness years when the television was off the air in the, in the 90s, they played Doctor Who and the Daleks and its sequel on television. It um, almost that, years, didn't it, JT? In the it was on all the time, wasn't it, Dan? I mean, through the nineties. Yeah. I mean, I would say it was on. I don't know if you remember Pete as well, but it was on television every other weekend, yeah, every other yeah, year, you know, every yeah. year throughout the nineties. You know, and, and and that's still happening today. For me, that's quite exciting because a lot of children discovered Doctor Who back then, and then went off to find out whatever else was out there, leading to a lot of confusion in the fandom. But that's something different. That's fantastic. <laughs> But, you know, it's, it, it's always surprising to me, Ian, that back in the, in the 60s and certainly into the 70s, you could go to the cinema and watch on the buses or are you being served as a film? That doesn't make any sense to me at all, taking your television script and just transferring it to the, to the cinema. Whereas with Doctor Who and the Daleks and its sequel, it's, a, it's the same script, but it's twisted to be a film. And I think that's to the magic movie, of what they yeah. did there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Translated it more effectively, condensing it, you know, and uh, quite a triumph. I mean, that's not an easy job. Peter, Doctor in the Daleks was a massive hit. I just think it had the competition with Mary Poppins on its release. I think that was what maybe dwarfed it. Maybe. But I, I think you have to remember, because I lived through these days, that people didn't have as much disposable income. It was a big thing to go to the cinema uh, for me. Um, I know some youngsters went to Saturday morning um, yeah. cinemas. I, I wasn't allowed to go uh, to such a thing. Do you remember, was Doctor Who and the Daleks part of that whole Saturday morning? Do you, do you ever, of course, seen that as a, as a kid, Doctor Who and the Daleks' is Saturday morning cinema? No, because I, I, I wasn't allowed to go. It wasn't there, yeah. No. But well, if anybody knows, I'd love to know. I've often thought about that because, you know, I, I, I came into those whole Saturday morning movie things, although they stopped it very early in the 70s. But I do remember going I to do. some and throwing the popcorn around as you did yeah. and not really watching the film. <laughs> You yeah, know, and they were repeating things like Buster Crabs, Flash Gordon, and all that sort of stuff. Then yeah. you got all those foundation things, you know. And but I do remember throwing popcorn around, and you know, was Doctor Who and the Daleks part of that whole Saturday morning ritual? I guess it was more matinee, maybe. Well, I, I remember the first time it appeared in television was under High Adventure, and you said it was morning. I'm sure it was evening. They showed the well, in my day, the first time I saw it, I remember it came on on a Saturday when Swap Shop had gone off the air for its summer break. Doctor Who and the Daleks was a mainstay for a couple of years. I remember being told about this by my dad saying, oh, there's a Peter Cushing Doctor Who film on, you should watch this. Annoyingly, in my case, yeah, I first saw it on Saturday morning TV as well. But just like with the Star Wars movies, I saw them out of order. So I saw the, the sequel to this first i had to wait another couple of years to oh, catch doctor done? who and the daleks no this was a film that i i only ever saw still images of in a really beaten up copy of i think it was the dalek world book that was in my school library so i had no yeah. idea what those pictures were, were from i had no idea that even been doctor who movies and by the time i actually found one it wasn't this one. And I remember seeing images of, of the cast oh, of Doctor Who and the Daleks that. hanging out of the door of the TARDIS in black and white in this annual and just thinking, who are they? What's going on? So I, I sort of realised, I rationalised that the reason, the reasoning behind it was that Doctor Who, this TV show that I loved, you know, that starred the guy with the curly hair and the scarf, that that was, had been based on some films that had come out years and oh, years ago. And of course, eventually you, you join the dots don't you? So, yeah. yeah, this this film, Doctor and the Daleks, was released uh, in London 
That was where it premiered on the 23rd of August 1965. It was the uh, the 20th biggest British box office moneymaker of wow. that year. It didn't perform quite as well in the States, yeah. but obviously Doctor Who and the, and the Daleks, you know, they were relatively unknown then, but I think it still did reasonably well. And as part of a that big promotional campaign in 1965, a number of the Daleks did go out to the Cannes Film Festival is where they, they bumped into John and Cynthia ah. Lennon, no doubt. It did uh, Gold Key, which were a sort of uh, a lower tier comics company in the States. They did uh, put out a comic book adaptation of this, didn't they, Ian? So that's that's quite a... I, 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 I was able to buy it. It wasn't oh, really The original, not the reprint. You bought the original no, one. The original. Now, it's interesting uh, because the BBC uh, have often said, oh, we, we can't show out of time doctors because That's it right, can yeah. to the public and yeah. if you ha heard the latest news of, of David Tennant coming back maybe not as the 10th doctor there's a possibly there's the new doctor I would love to see Paul McGann back because TV movie I, I thought he was brilliant in it and I was very very sad that uh, nothing happened with that but um, there'll be a lot of doctors all over the place and as I said to people the problem is the BBC, on the one hand, want Doctor Who to be seen as an epic story that started in 1963 and is going on and on. However, the reality is it's very, very difficult to keep up the merchandising, even of your favourite doctors. Um, I'm sure there's very few people who will have every single piece of merchandising. There was a big burst for the Daleks in the wake of the film. But yeah. nowadays, a lot of fans like some periods of the show's history more than others. And it's very, very difficult to see it all. But the BBC wants it to be seen as an epic story, an unfolding story. And at the same time, when it suits them, they want to be seen as a collection of different doctors and different eras and time. What we have to look at here is the fact that the the, the series on television, uh, Doctor Who, was successful enough to generate interest in a, a, a company coming along and saying to the BBC, we'd like to make a movie. There, now, that was due to partly, in fact, that the Dalek boom took off. You know, there was that whole me merchandise revolution of, of, of Dalek material and, and police boxes, but mainly the Daleks. If that boom hadn't happened, then we wouldn't have got those films and Doctor Who probably wouldn't have lasted the two or three years after it did, so there's a, there's a lot that's come out of uh, those initial episodes that Terry Nation has written there for the for the television show, including these two Dalek films, and that's that's a wonderful celebration there of the success of, of capturing that format, that and formula that is it's just magical, that's fantastic. But if it hadn't been for that merchandise boom, we wouldn't have got those films. Right from the start, of very very early on, Doctor Who spread its its wings or or whatever you like into other media. Um, you've yeah. got the comic strip and TV comic, you've got the novelization, you've got the Dalek annual. And interesting, the first annual wasn't a Doctor Who annual, it was a Dalek book, and then the films, and then it, it's uh, sort of spread. If we're talking about um, what's come off the back of the marketing and the publicity around it, Pete, from your knowledge of what Peter Cushing was up to in his career, would this been a, a culture shock for him to suddenly be associated with this character and his take on that character 
in what was to be a family stroke children's film when when originally he was known for all these horror and, and graphic characters I think he did well up for it because uh, that was just the type of person that Peter Cushion was because he had uh, perfected his craft and he never forgot his roots because he was a huge name in television to start with but he didn't want to return to TV because he felt that would be a, a step back so that's why he continued with film but then again he did you know cover quite a lot of genres he didn't feel stifled by his association with Hammer. No, I don't think so. I mean, that that was actually just still in development. That was only in the late fifties that that had started. You know, so it wasn't really. That was it was still kind of early days. You know, obviously yeah. it became a a big name because Dracula and Frankenstein. You know, was so successful. But I don't think at that point in his career did he feel at all stifled. Because this is a lovely performance that mm -hmm. I I feel runs through the entire movie as a real leading man and there probably is some truth to the fact that these films do belong to the Daleks but oh, yeah. a great many actors and maybe some that were bigger than Cushing would have probably disappeared against all of that against all of the colour and all of the flashiness all of the, all of the smoke and all of that fire and Cushing never does and to be I don't think Roberta Tovey ever does too but you're never in any doubt about who the lead in this movie is I think he works yes. with the script really beautifully and I think the more I return to this film in particular this was always the one that I used to watch kind of out of obligation Doctor Who and the Daleks for me, over the years, it's improved. I appreciate the, the lightness of touch, the balance, the, all the plates that it's spinning, and everything that it, that it achieves. It's just an 82-minute movie. And mm. yeah, each time I see it, it impresses me more. I think it's so, so rich and, and made with such care. I, I really do love it. And Cushing's Doctor, I know that he was out in the cold for a very, very long time. People ah, yeah. didn't even talk about it, but I don't think that's the case now. I think we're very confident of that which Doctor Who as an intellectual property is, that the, the general mood is that it's fine that they exist, and I think we love them for what they are, Absolutely. rather than despise them Absolutely. for what they're not. I totally agree, and I think it's part of the fact that we refer to them as Dalek films, and they're there to enjoy. But one of the things that I find slightly heartbreaking, if you like, about um, Cushing is that he never knew what was to come. Apparently not. You know, I mean, here we are now still, we're, we're doing this show about it. They are about to be re-released on the, on the big screens around the United Kingdom and on 4K um, <laughs> Blu-ray disc, all cleaned up and looking glitzy. You know, the, the, the fan base watches them they tune in children today are still coming across doctor who, his doctor who and he never knew that he never but, knew that was going to happen he never knew he was going to be part of this whole thing and as a sideline you know in, a, in an age where doctor who has been splintered into so many different franchises with companies doing that and the companies doing this and comic strips and companies doing that and his two films he only did two films are still very much in that mix what an achievement and his interpretation of doctor who still carries a joy and a lightness and an infectiousness so you can actually buy into him what an incredible legacy from an incredible actor and as you've said there's a brand new deluxe edition 4k blu-ray release of doctor who and the daleks due for release on the 20th of june 2022 it's a combination release of a standard blu-ray with that 4k and comes in a, a giant deluxe pack full of posters and postcards 
and all manner of other things. A, a real collector's item. There's a collector's coin in there too, whatever you want to do with that. I have no idea, but just to whet your appetite, here's a little look at the brand new release, the 4K release of Doctor Who and the Daleks. This is TARDIS, our time and space machine. Off we go. Something terrible happened here. Exterminate them! What are we going to do? Fight them! So, yes, the film is uh, currently being shown, I think, not just on Talking Pictures TV. I think they've shown it a few times. And that's yeah. also available to watch on their catch-up service. But it's also on another channel as well, isn't it? It is indeed. And Pete, you might be aware of this, but the Horror Channel have now got access to the two Dalek films and they will be starting them very soon. They start them in June. Very good. Good, good. stuff. So I think finally, our final thought for this one has to be simply how do we, how do we rate this film? How many fluid links out of five <laughs> would, you give, would you give this one, JT? <laughs> Oh, well, how many fluid links would I get? I've always loved that about the fluid link, by the way. It just <laughs> happens to fit the Dalek's claw when he takes it out of the doctor, doctor's pocket. It's handy, um, isn't it? That's so handy, that. How, what would I give this? I'm going to give Doctor Who and the Daleks, I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. And I'll give it a 10 out of 10 because it was ambitious. It's got a great cast that comes through. It looks amazing. The Daleks are wonderful. I get a thrill about it because it was my first introduction to that story, as I said, way before the Hartnell original. And I can still watch it very happily on a Sunday afternoon today. Perfect Sunday afternoon film. How about you, Ian? How many fluid links out of five or ten would you give Doctor Who and the Daleks? I would, to say, I would like to say, if Doctor Who... Uh, had stopped in 1989 and never had a comeback, would these films have been so revered as they are today? We'd never know. There's a lot of 60s films I would like to see in 4K and don't get the treatment uh, regarded as serious yeah. films. I would say that Peter Cushing never gave a bad performance uh, in whatever role he played. He sort of enveloped the character that he was playing and he was a bit typecast, Dracula and Frankenstein. My favourite Peter Cushing role, apart from Doctor Who, was a film. He played this surgeon yes. playing against I, type in corruption. Like oh, he was a nasty, a nasty man. piece of work in that film. Yes. <laughs> so can you give us a score out of five okay. for this one, Ian? I have to say five. A very decisive five there. But you, Peter, how many fluid links out of five do you give uh, Doctor Who and the Daleks? Probably 3.5. Oh, okay. So, yeah, okay. Uh, why uh, hold back from giving it more? Or what do you think its strengths are compared to its weaknesses? Strengths, very colourful, great production. But I think, for me, it just lacked a kind of sense of sinister power. There wasn't enough of that. I would have liked there to be more of a... You think they, they could have I pushed think, it more? Yeah, if it had been imbued with more menace, I think 
that mm. would elevate have elevated it for me. That's the I horror think. side of you coming out, isn't it? I know, <laughs> I know, I know, I can't shake it all. I'm going to call, start calling you Petrified Pete. I think that'd be a good one. <laughs> okay, I I have to go with Ian. I think I have to give this a five. I think it's uh, increased in enjoyment for me over the years. I think it's uh, relentless fun. Mm. I think it whisks me away every time I watch it. You were right, JT. It is a perfect Sunday afternoon film. I think it's best on a rainy day. But I don't think there's any bad day, really, to watch Doctor Who and the Daleks. And despite the fact that there's nothing here that's going to frighten the horses. And yes, maybe now, I think a film aimed at this precise balance at this demographic probably could push it a lot, lot further. I think for the mid-60s, I think it does its job beautifully. But I think there's scary scenes. Um, in the old days, oh. the often implied horror, which was much more... Yeah horrific than if you'd showed it the scenes with susan in the forest and so on i think it's quite unsettling that's not very comforting and apparently ian they did the creature makers who who worked at aru at amicus they did create a full dalek prop of a mutant that was underneath the the cloak that they did intend to be shown on screen they weren't going to hold back from that because obviously the bbc one had just shown the claw they did intend on showing a full creature but they again they they held back decided that it was probably best that we we don't yeah. see it all i think that yeah. with hindsight I think that was probably the best call to make it's another interesting factoid about this uh, rather remarkable little film that did so well in the summer of 1965 and occupies a very specific corner of Doctor Who history. It's soon on Blu-ray and maybe at your local cinema. We'll have to try and find out and uh, see if we can get that information to you via the social media. Or if you find out before we do, let us know if it's screening near you and we can share that information so as many of our companions as possible can get out there and see them on the big screen and experience feel their fire <laughs> Ian, Ian, Peter, JT it's been a delight talking about Doctor Who and the Daleks with yes. you, we're going to be Thank back you. for more in the future, but for this time that's it, speak to you live later, bye bye live long Thank and cross Thank you, take care guys <laughs>Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We'd like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to these other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, discussing the latest in entertainment pop culture. Blood of Kings, Immortals Take Notice, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theaters, where we celebrate our favorite movies. Time Warp, the Fandom Flashback podcast discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, and TV pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville show. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s rock metal podcast. Type 40, our show covering the time-traveling Doctor Who universe with host Dan Hadley. Lethal Mullet, an 80s and 90s action film podcast with host Adam P. O'Brien. Also check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast with hosts Scott, Derek, and Nathan. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast. A deep dive into the final frontier with hosts Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. And check out our newest shows, The Fandom Show, our monthly fandom podcast network live YouTube exclusive show about the month's hottest topics in fandom, and the FPN True Believers MCU podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic Universe 
and the related Marvel television and streaming MCU universe, including the connections to the original Marvel comics. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on several platforms. Please subscribe to the Fandom Podcast Network YouTube channel to receive notifications of new podcast episodes and live events. You can enjoy all of the Fandom Podcast Network audio podcasts on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. The Fandom Podcast Network is on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and iTunes. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find the Fandom Podcast Network on Instagram at Fandom Podcast Network and on Twitter at FanPod Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Okay, so yes, in a few episodes' time, of course, we'll be back with another review of the sequel, Daleks Invasion Earth, 2150 AD. But for now, that's the old girl starting up and calling time on this edition of the show. I'll be back with another soon. Look out for that wherever you found this. It could have been on the dedicated home feed for Type 40 at type40.podbean.com or over on the podcatcher of your choice, the Spotify's, Audible's, the Podbay's, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio. Did you get the picture? We're absolutely everywhere. We're also on YouTube, the world's largest streaming platform, on the Spacebook channel and on the Fandom Podcast Network's own channel too. We're still on the Fandom Podcast Network's master feed, loaded with all those treats, never mind weekly, they're coming out daily. So please consider a trip sideways in time for more quality shows from the FPN too. Maybe you'd like to have your say about all of this, not just the Dalek movies, but anything that's going on that we've covered on the show so far, and that's to come throughout the rest of 2022 and into that 60th anniversary year. Why not reach out to us through our social media, Instagram and Twitter at Type40Doctor Who. We're all ears and all eyes for whatever you've got to say about all of that. And there's our email to type40 at gmail.com. And if you're feeling really brave, this is seriously hardcore, you can come and connect with us all in real time in the Type 40 Facebook group. If you go over to Facebook and enter Type 40 into the search field, you'll find generations upon regenerations of Doctor Who fans of all ages geeking out not just about the classic Doctor Who and new Doctor Who, but speculating about what's to come in the exciting brand new era of all new Doctor Who. Find me too on Twitter and Instagram as the Spacebook, where I'm wheezing and groaning and generally geeking out about all things both inside and outside of the TARDIS. Yes, now and again, I do talk about something other than Doctor Who. Go and find me over there. That's it for this time, though. Thanks for listening. We always have the time if you have the space here at Type 40. Take care. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye.
Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, is a Space Book production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.